It is September the 8th, 2014, on Monday at approximately 3.39 at the time of beginning this message. Hello, my name is David Thompson. Welcome to all of you that happen to be hearing this message. Those of you that are new, I just briefly want to share with you that I am seeking to speak this message according to the leading of God's Spirit, out of the Spirit of God, as to what would be God's word to you as an individual and also to the corporate body of Christ around the world. The word of God says, If any man minister, let him speak as the oracles of God. And so I am seeking to speak out of relationship with God in the Spirit those words that are more than just my words. In that pursuit, I also seek for God's leading at least six times a week, that is from Monday to Saturday, in a particular chapter of Scripture, which I mostly receive by the casting of lots before God. I will now go into the passage of Scripture that I received today. And I will mention also that this passage, which is Luke chapter 3, I also received on July the 28th through the casting of lots. So there is also that message which you can hear. First, I will read this chapter. Now, I'm not going to read the whole of this chapter of Luke because the last part is just a listing, a genealogical listing. So I will be reading Luke chapter 3 from verse 1 to verse 22. Now in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tatriarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tatriarch of Itria, and of the region of Trachonitis, and Lysanias, the Tatriarch of Albany, Annas and Caiaphas, being the high priests, the word of God came unto John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. And he came into all the country about Jordan, preaching the baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, saying, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Prepare ye the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be brought low. And the crooked shall be made straight, and the rough ways shall be made smooth, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Then said he to the multitude that came forth to be baptized of him, O generation of vipers, who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bring forth therefore fruits worthy of repentance, and begin not to say within yourselves, We have Abraham to our father. For I say unto you that God is able of these stones to raise up children unto Abraham. And now also the axe is laid unto the root of the trees. 
Every tree, therefore, that bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. And the people asked him, saying, What shall we do then? He answered and saith unto them, He that hath two coats, let him impart to him that hath none. And he that hath meat, let him do likewise. Then came also the publicans to be baptized, and said unto him, Master, what shall we do? And he saith unto them, Exact no more than that which is appointed you. And the soldiers likewise demanded of him, saying, What shall we do? And he said unto them, Do violence to no man, neither accuse any falsely, and be content with your wages. And as the people were in expectation, and all men mused in their hearts of John, whether he were the Christ or not, John answered, saying unto them all, I indeed baptize you with water, but one mightier than I cometh the latchet of whose shoes I am not worthy to unloose. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire, whose fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly purge his floor, and will gather the wheat into his garner, but the chaff he will burn with fire unquenchable. And many other things in his exhortation preached he unto the people. But Herod the Tatriarch, being reproved by him for Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, and for all the evils which Herod had done, added yet this above all, that he shut up John in prison. Now when all the people were baptized, it came to pass that Jesus also being baptized and praying, the heaven was open, and the Holy Ghost descended in a bodily shape like a dove upon him. And a voice came from heaven which said, Thou art my beloved Son, in thee I am well pleased. And that is the part that we will be reading and speaking on that I will be speaking from today, from verses 1 to 22. In verses 1 to 6 of this chapter, basically we see the conditions for the return of the Lord. Of course, this is the first return of Christ. And at that time, it is very evident that people we're expecting the return of the Messiah called the Christ. In fact, there was very clearly the belief at that time among very religious people. I believe it included the Pharisees and certainly the Essenes and others that there was a suffering Messiah and there was a conquering Messiah. It seems that the people were in great expectation of their being a conquering Messiah and ignored the fact that many of them were also anticipating from their convictions and their beliefs that are evident in the writings of that period of time a suffering Messiah. Of course, where they were falling short was believing that there was two different messiahs. Beginning in verse 
3, we see that John came into all the country about Jordan preaching the baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. He was evidently the one that God had called to prepare the way for the first return of God into this world in Jesus Christ. And for those that are new, I want to give you an understanding that Jesus Christ is not just merely a man. The understanding of one God in the Father and in Jesus Christ and in the Holy Spirit is this. That God, in order to govern the ultimate aspects of his creation, which are that which is beyond time and space, and his creation which is in time and space, and the filling of all things in omnipresence in the creation. Those are the three ultimate dimensions, beyond time and space, in time and space, and filling all things. God must have his being beyond time and space. His being is not some mere vague life force. God is all the more ultimate in personality than his creation and in intelligence than his creation. So much so that the word of God says that his thoughts are so much more superior and higher than our thoughts, even as the heavens are higher than the earth. And of course, the scripture describes the stars in the Old Testament of being more in multitude than the sand grains that are on the earth. Amazing that now they know that scientifically. That in our Milky Way alone, there are a hundred billion stars, many of them hundreds of times bigger and even possibly thousands, some of them, bigger than our sun. A hundred billion stars in our galaxy alone. They have also calculated that there are approximately a hundred billion galaxies. Well, that makes probably even more than all the sand grains in the sea. So here we have the first coming of God and the understanding of one God is that he is in personage, obviously beyond time and space. He is perceived as the one that is the origin of all things, is the originator. The word father means originator. And as the one that can see the end from the beginning. But for God to govern within creation, if he is God, he would be governing within these three ultimate aspects, beyond time and space, in time and space, and filling all space. He must be in personage, in ultimate intelligence, in personage, and consciousness within his creation, the time and space realm. And so, in that aspect, God is the Son. The word Son means expression. The Son is the expression of the Father, which is the originator, into the time and space realm. So you have the originator expressed and the expression of the originator. The expression of God in origin, 
into creation in his son. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 says that Jesus Christ is the full expression of the Father. Christ himself said, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. And that's just not a seeing outwardly. That's a seeing with the eye of the heart. That's a perceiving, which is another word for seeing. And of course, God's presence is attached to every particle of existence that he has created. And now they've discovered the God particle in July of 2012 through the largest project ever that has happened in the history of the world, the 10 to $16 billion project that took 16 years to build, and I can't go into that now, colliding particles and analyzing them. They have discovered the God particle in July 2012. These collisions are about a billion a second, out of which computers filter a million, and the temperatures of those explosions are 100,000 times hotter than the center of the sun, in chambers colder than outer space, powerful magnets and cameras. I got, don't want to get distracted into that, but to emphasize that God's spirit is attached to every particle of existence and can become creative, can do anything, the way one of the physicists, which isn't even a believer from what I perceive of what he was saying, he concludes that this God particle or this thing that pervades everything, even where there's no evidence of anything, where it's total emptiness, so to speak, he says it's just like the neurons of a brain that is attached to everything that exists and even where there isn't anything that exists. And so God is able in very in person, agent, in omnipresence, to be creative anywhere at the same time and in many places at the same time by his Holy Spirit. And so we have God in government understood in three personages, the Father, the Originator, the Son, the expression of God into time and space, and the Holy Spirit. The omnipresence of God in government in the Son and in the Father filling all things. That I explained for those that are new. The Trinity isn't something complicated. What I explained is not complicated and gives an understanding of the belief in only one true God, not three gods, one true God. Now, having explained that, the reason I mentioned this is also to give an understanding on what we are about to share. Because there is a relationship in the triunity of God that also God very clearly desires us to come into in union with God. And that is very clearly seen in the prayer of in John chapter 17 of Christ where he prays that even as the Father and the Son are one, may we be one with him. In this passage, John is the one that's preparing the way for the first coming of the Messiah to the earth. Now you have an understanding that this is God manifested in the flesh into the time and space realm to communicate with his creation. But there is also now us in our time waiting for the second and final return of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the full expression of God, to this earth. And he's coming 
for his corporate bride. But as John is preparing for the first coming of Christ to this earth to bring forth God's purpose in becoming a perfect atoning sacrifice that would suffer more than us mere creatures and did and would be humbled more than us mere creatures and did so that we could have the opportunity to repent and be reconciled to God. Jesus Christ is called the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. John is preparing them for this first coming and cries out in various passages that are very much part of what we're reading here. He says, Behold the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. Because before Christ came, they were commanded to offer certain animal sacrifices, and one of the most outstanding ones that was offered was an innocent, pure lamb. And they would lay their hand on the lamb, which was a symbol of their sin being transferred onto that lamb, and then that innocent, pure lamb would be killed as a symbol of, of judgment falling upon innocence as a symbol of atoning sacrifice. But from the time of Adam and Eve till now, there was a clear understanding that the source of forgiveness did not lie in the animal sacrifice. There was a clear understanding that the animal sacrifice could cleanse the physical body to allow the Spirit of God to dwell with them and Christ made it clear that that was where it was at. For he said before he died on the cross, but you know him for he dwells with you, but he shall dwell in you. And it was after the substitutionary sacrifice of God himself in his son, Jesus Christ, that there was the cleansing of our soul and spirit that was possible that would allow the Holy Spirit to not only dwell with, but to indwell our soul and our spirit. And also for us to have access into the very presence of God through prayer in a dimension that we couldn't with our soul before because our soul could not be purified, our spirit and soul. Nevertheless, without getting into a lot of detail, because I have in-depth teaching on this, I want to emphasize that they experienced coming into a relationship where they were brought forth anew of the Spirit or born again of the Spirit. And that happened from the time of Adam and Eve till now because when they because they thoroughly recognized that forgiveness was in God. And there are very many verses in the Old Testament that make it clear they believed that forgiveness was only in God, that he was the source of forgiveness. 
And there's other verses that make it very clear that an animal sacrifice could not atone for the sin of the soul. There's verses that say something to this effect. Even if I was to give the fruit of my womb or my own body for my sins, it wouldn't be sufficient to atone for my soul. So there's an understanding that God requires judgment because his love has such integrity and purity that it is a blazing fire of judgment against the slightest that would be contrary to his love. And his love is perfect because it is always choosing the highest lasting good over anything that would be less and thus would be corrupt and could not contain unlimited power in life if it were less. So this love is a blazing fire of judgment that guards against any choices that are less. And that is all out of God's own pleasure and volition. And I do not, I, I, I'm tempted to go into explaining the beautiful relationship and the triunity of God here. In explaining this atoning sacrifice. But what I want to emphasize here right now is this, that when people truly recognize the holiness of God, which is the integrity of his love as a flaming fire of judgment against all that is contrary, which is the foundation that allows God's love to be expressed in creativity that has no corruption in it and that can go on in ever greater enlargement and fulfillment and was ultimately expressed in his desire to have a corporate bride that is focused in the atoning sacrifice of God himself to bring forth that corporate bride. And I'll briefly explain this beautiful unity in the tri triunity of one true God and government. There is reciprocation within the triunity of God in fellowship one with another, which, is, which allows the, the release of this love in creativity, in expression. And so the Son looks at the Father and sees the perfection of his being and its purity that judges anything that would be contrary. It is so beautiful and glorious that he's just filled with thankfulness and he says to the Father, Father, I'm so filled with thankfulness and love for who you are and the beauty of who you are. And I'm reciprocating this beauty of your presence that I want to have this love enlarged towards you by going into a great condescension where I'll suffer more than the mere creature and humble myself more than my, my creation in order to bring forth unto you, Father, a beautiful corporate bride that you can inherit. And the Father says likewise to the Son, I am willing to suffer and let you go because I love you, Son, and I want you and I'm so thankful for the beauty and the glory I see in you that I want you to be enlarged and in inheriting a corporate bride in fellowship with me. And this goes on with continual. It's beyond our comprehension. What I'm describing is so limited, but gives a, a rough understanding of this beautiful oneness with God, the Son, and God the Father, and God in omnipresence in the Holy Spirit in the person of the Holy Spirit. So John is preaching here in verse 3, the baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. 
Now, this is a repentance that has the understanding of resulting in a new identity because the understanding of a baptism in the Greek is the understanding of being totally saturated in something and immersed in something. So you take that characteristic on. So a baptism of repentance in water for the remission of the sin and the going under the water is the casting off of the old as a sign of repentance and the coming out of the water is the putting on of identity and relationship with God so that the things that were motivating you before that were of this world are no longer the things that you seek and are motivated by. You see the emptiness and the vanity of those things. So this is a symbol that symbolizes genuine repentance also as it was a symbol when they laid their hands on the innocent lamb. And they recognized that the ultimate lamb was of God. That's why John said, behold, the lamb of God. The ultimate sacrifice was not in a mere animal that is a lamb, but in God that was as the lamb innocent and pure, and that took upon himself judgment for us so that we, through receiving his atoning work on the cross, where his blood was poured out, his life's blood poured out for us so that we could be cleansed of all sin and forgiven of all sin and made white as snow. John is preaching a repentance that results in a totally new identity by this practice and this symbol of going under the water and coming up, recognizing that there is a true repentance. And he goes on in this passage. And I will point out that anyone that has this kind of repentance, even before they go into the water, will experience being genuinely born of the Spirit from the time of Adam till now, except that before Adam, the Holy Spirit dwelt with them, and they knew him by that. They knew him very intimately. Enoch had such an intimate relationship with God that he was translated. So did Abraham have an intimate relationship with God and Elijah that was taken up, and many others. There were those that prophesied in the camp and the elders told Moses to tell them to shut up. And Moses said, I wish all of you were in such a relationship with God that the spirit of prophecy could come on you out of the worship that you're having with God. Prophecy comes out of worship. That's clear in John, in the book of Revelations, chapter 19, where the angel commands the apostle John saying, don't worship me, but worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Worship God for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. It is the response of expression out of a genuine love and creativity towards God that brings forth a pure expression that comes not from our own words, but from the Holy Spirit. So here we have John preaching a message which is clearly described in verse 4, where he begins to say, as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, saying, 
the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be brought low and the crooked shall be made straight and the rough ways shall be made smooth and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Now, that means the deliverance of God and the word Jesus means deliverance. The Yeshua of God also in personage as well as God's deliverance that flows from that in many aspects. But in this description here, this is not merely a description for the time when John was preparing the way for Christ as the Messiah. But it is a description for the second coming of Christ as well. As John is describing the preparation that must take place, there must be the raising up of those that are dejected like the valley and the humbling of those that are lifted up like mountains and hills. He is preaching a message of humility through the fear of God that breaks the tendency of man to control his own destiny individually and corporately to control those that are under him in a religious hierarchy. That is why we see a little further on John the Baptist speaking with real anger that comes from God to the Pharisees saying, oh, generation of vipers. The tendency in human nature to be controlling instead of letting God be the control center of our lives individually as well as controlling of others corporately. Things evolve into a religious hierarchy. Initially, God is the one that initiates leadership by bringing them through the wilderness of trial. John the Baptist was in the wilderness it describes here, and he came out of the wilderness. What does the wilderness speak of? It speaks of a place where there is nothing there that can draw you away into the distractions of busyness the distractions of amusements and of the pleasure of this world. It also speaks of a place where there can be hardship and refining and trial like the children of Israel experienced as they were leaving Egypt and going through the wilderness to enter the promised land. They were going through a process of purification to come out of their identity in the things of this life that they tended to put their security and their trust in. John the Baptist in preparing the coming of Christ is calling God's people to come to a place where they choose to look onto the Lamb of God, where they choose to see God for who he really is in his reality, which is first in this love that is totally pure in its integrity as a blazing fire of judgment. This is the holiness of God, the defensive aspect of God's being of love out of which springs forth a recognition of a creativity that can ever expand and be without corruption to the point that God could have such a moral capacity within himself as to become 
to humble himself more than the mere creature and suffer more than the mere creature by becoming a perfect atoning sacrifice. That is the ultimate expression of mercy. And they recognize that for God to have the power to forgive and yet require judgment implied that he must have such a moral perfection. Some may have recognized it intellectually. Some may have had it by revelation. Some may have had it more subconsciously. Others, not at all. But there was this recognition very clearly emphasized in the time before Christ. And that is totally seen in many, many places, especially in the Psalms. There's a continual emphasis on the holiness of God and of the mercy of God. Both of those two things together, it is also emphasized in the time after Christ. In words like truth and grace, the gospel of truth and grace. Christ was full of grace and of truth. Grace in the New Testament is another word that is similar to the Old Testament word for mercy, which has the understanding of God's favor in its definition. With the New Testament, there's a slight difference between mercy and grace, which I will not go into in this message. For detail, it's not, un not necessary in the points. The Lord is wanting to bring forth in this passage of Scripture today to the body of Christ is that for there to be this manifestation of the salvation of God or of the second coming of Christ for his corporate bride, there is also preparation that is taking place in the body of Christ where we must return back to the place where we truly, genuinely recognize God for who he is, where we basically we make a choice to fear God, a choice to recognize and re be reciprocative of God in his holiness, out of which then we can be reciprocative of God in his mercy and grace. For it is when you see the mercy of God and you cannot know the mercy of God without first knowing the holiness of God, without without first knowing what it is to reverence the holiness of God and be totally receptive to his judgments and recognize him as a God of judgment in your life personally and that you deserve his wrath and his anger. Remember what Paul the Apostle said to the New Testament church, therefore knowing the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. And it says also that in Hebrews 12, our God is a consuming fire and that we are to serve God with reverence and godly. May God, and then it emphasizes that we're to receive grace in order to be able to serve God with reverence and godly fear. And when we come to a place in the body of Christ where we recognize who God is, not a mere intellectual ascent, but a deep turning from the heart through prayer, through learning to gaze on the beauty of God's holiness. There's great beauty that comes out of the holiness of God. It is out of purity, the purity of God's love, that there is wholeness first. And out of the wholeness, there is the manifestation of the beauty of God. And of course, in that manifestation, there is also the glory of God. And it is we, it is as we come to that place of recognizing 
out of utter awe and humility. We are nothing apart from God, our unworthiness, but also his great love and mercy that is made as accepted in the beloved and received and forgiven and made justified, made worthy. The evidence of genuine repentance is that it comes out of the genuine fear of God that births a genuine circumcision in the heart, which is another illustration that is illustrating genuine rebirth and genuine heart belief that is not merely intellectual assent. It's plainly described in Hebrews 4.12 that the word of God is a sharp two-edged sword dividing asunder the soul and the spirit and piercing to the very inner motives of our being, not giving an exact quote for time. And that two-edged sword is first on the one side of the sword, the holiness of God, out of which issues the other side, which is the mercy of God, the grace of God. And it is that that causes the spirit that is worshiping the soul causes the soul to fall off and cry out in a deep cry from the heart that circumcises the heart so that there is now communion and fellowship with God. John the Baptist here is bringing forth the emphasis on humbling ourselves that comes out of the fear of God. It will break the spirit of control in us as individuals and in the body of Christ corporately. God raises up leadership that's gone through the wilderness. I was talking about the wilderness early. You have Moses going through tremendous trials. He leaves Egypt. And, and it seems like the destiny that he thought God had for him had to totally die. 40 years being trained by the Egyptians, 40 years being refined in the wilderness, and then the last 40 years leading the children of Israel. He was raised up with, of God. He didn't have any self-seeking motives for glory from people or anything else. But as time goes on, and people desire to be in positions of leadership out of wrong motives because people have become comfortable and have become caught up with their own world and their own natural desires, eventually there devolves a hierarchy that is not ordained of God, where professionalism becomes the criteria for someone being a pastor, the criteria for someone being whatever else, a teacher, and so on, even an apostle without the demonstration and power of the Spirit, only in word. God is calling us as the body of Christ to start the church services on our face before God, choosing to fear him, choosing to humble ourselves, and to learn to wait on him until we begin to behold him with the eye of our heart, 
in the beauty of his holiness and to love the purity of God that brings wholeness to our inner being. The inner being of all of us is like a black hole in outer space that is pulling everything in to the void in order to, to try to fill that void, which can only be filled with the Spirit of God. And the deceptions of our own heart that wants to seek our own destiny are also like the electrons that revolve around the nucleus of an atom and form a hard shell. And it takes a powerful positive and a negative to break that hard shell. First, there must be the negative. That is the recognition of the holiness of God. That's what's represented as a foundation from which springs the creativity of God's love, the expression of God's love without corruption, which represents the positive or the symbol of the cross. And it is in seeing those two things in God through getting on our faces before God in our church services. People, come, Some churches may be concerned that their prayer meeting is just a few people. Well, this is what God wants. Forget about the little prayer meeting. Why, why would it be that you would not make the church service itself a prayer meeting? Where you start the service in worship, where you start on your face, being in utter awe of God and humility, where the leadership gets on their faces and on their knees, and everyone in the congregation does. And they learn to be still, to be real, and not to be filled with their own presumptive ways, but to enter in to an awareness of whose presence they're in and a sensitivity to whose presence they're in. When you really love someone, they are not treated as common. They are treated as special and precious. And when there is a genuine perception of who God is, there is a genuine love and a genuine reverence that does not bring God drag God down to commonality. I have heard preachers that are so-called charismatic preachers, so-called very anointed, and they may, and that doesn't mean they're not the Lord's, but they're deceived in this area. And they start making jokes about the Holy Spirit and pretending that they're a bird and so on to get people to laugh. This is a total disrespect. It is bringing God down to a commonality that is not the true and pure liberty of the Spirit of God. When we are in God's presence, we do not want to do anything. If he was here in person, would we joke about him in a light and trivial way? This is not just some other man. I don't even like the idea of calling God daddy, to be honest, because it implies that he's just like another person. He's more than another father, an earthly father. He's far more. He's far greater. He deserves utter reverence. Personally, I prefer to call God only father. I'm not going to condemn or say it's wrong to do the other. But I think there's more meaning in, that, in, in the expression that way. But there needs to be this understanding of the fear of God which is clearly mentioned in Ecclesiastes chapter 5 on the first verse there where it says, well, I, I guess it's pretty fast for me to turn to it. I'll just turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 5. Verse 1, and it says, Keep thy foot when thou goest to the house of God, 
and be more ready to hear than to give the sacrifices of fools, the sacrifice of fools. For they consider not that they do evil. Be not rash with thy mouth and let not thine heart be hasty to utter anything before God. For God is in heaven and thou upon earth. Therefore, let thy words be few. And we'll go back to John. Or, or not John, Luke, where I'm speaking from here. Luke chapter 3. God is calling us as his people to repent of being so presumptuous before the presence of God that we will be filled with our own presumptuous words, with our own self-initiated ideas and programs and all these things. Get on your face as a congregation and humble yourselves and seek the face of God. And be still and know that he's God until you sense him moving you into such a place where you see him with the eye of your heart and his glory that you cannot help but describe his beauty and you rise in a liberty of joy and praise and in expressing adulation unto him in words that come forth in the spirit of prophecy the spirit of a new song that is prophetic and so on. God is calling leadership to release the congregation to move in the gifts of the Spirit and to repent of control. How is it that we do not, as leaders in the body of Christ, fully facilitate each member of the body to be able to express their worship before God, out of which they can also come forth in the gifts of the Spirit towards one another in testimonies and songs and prophetic words and words of exhortation and words of wisdom and so on, as it was in the early church. Paul the Apostle, and I have said this in many of my messages, says that God has tempered the body together in such a way that he has given more abundant honor unto the part that lacks that there should be no schism in the body of Christ. When control is broken because there's the genuine fear of God that breaks pride, leadership will facilitate the members of the body to express their worship unto God and their words of blessing to one another. They will facilitate it. And then the Holy Spirit can come on someone that is insignificant like a valley that is not looked up to with a more powerful gift that will humble those that tend to be looked up to. Thus pride is broken, as it says in Proverbs. Contention comes by pride. Division comes by pride. Denominationalism comes by pride. Pride in our doctrine. Pride in whatever it is. In this verse, verse 5, it also says not only that the mountains will be brought down and the valleys raised, but that the crooked shall be made straight and the rough ways shall be made smooth. And what this speaks of is two things. It speaks of a genuine honesty that comes out of the fear of God, that breaks Two tendencies, 
the tendency for that which is crooked and that which is rough, which speaks of two things. The tendency for people when they feel God's presence or they want to facilitate God's presence to bring what could be termed wildfire forth, like the strange fire that the sons of Aaron the priest brought forth and were smitten dead by God. They were presumptuous before God to express what was out, not, not pure, that it didn't have the integrity. When there's the genuine fear of God, there is an integrity in our heart before God. The f- genuine fear of God does not only birth humility, but it births honesty. In fact, they work in conjunction. The genuine fear of God causes us to see how nothing we are from apart from God and to appreciate his holiness and his judgment. As it says in the word of God, give thanks at the remembrance of his holiness. And it brings us to the place of total humility, which brings us to the place of total honesty. And then coming to the place of total honesty brings us to the place of even greater humility. We are in that place, in that secret place before God. It is then that there can come forth a purity in worship where we are who we genuinely are before God and before one another. But if one begins to violate their integrity and to seek experience above the integrity of who they are in truth before God. What happens is that there is an expression that because it is not rooted in the integrity of God's love or the holiness of God, that is impure and that manifests in a weirdness, a weirdness that is not of God. We see these examples throughout church history. You can read the writings of the Wesleys that dealt with people that had these, that supposedly had revivals and had these manifestations, and they reproved them. You can see Watchmanee, a great man of God, also had people that entered into these types of manifestations, wildfire, strange fire, and reproved them. These were great men of God. This is similar to the verse that says, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. The evidence of the genuine fear of God is that the wild fire, the filthiness of spirit, which is expressed in the experience of God's presence, is burned away. So that there is a purity in our worship where we are truly worshiping him in spirit and in truth. What happens is there is a tendency in human nature to follow one another and to put one's identity 
in one another and in the leader of a particular group more than in their relationship with God because they're experiencing reciprocation and fellowship on that level and allowing that to feed them above the reciprocative relationship that they should first have with God. And so, when this happens, I'll give you an example. I've seen this in many different examples in my pilgrimage as a believer. I have seen churches that emphasize that if you experience God moving through you so that you start laughing wildly and strangely, that somehow you're very spiritual and people are made to feel if they don't do that, that they're not really as close to God and they just don't see what the others see. And so now you have people feeling they have to do it or they're not part of the group or they have to do it because they want to experience this. And they're putting experience before truth. Or they have to do it because if the leader says it, it must be true. And they're putting their leader before God. This brings a conformity that is homogenous like a bunch of bricks that all look the same. And that is not genuine liberty. The Word of God emphasizes that we are to speak the truth in love. And that is in the context of coming in to genuine unity, and it's described in Ephesians. That we are to speak the truth in love. I could turn there for lack of time. I will not turn because it's getting close to an hour. But God is calling us as his people to come to a place where we learn in our private life to have such a relationship out of the fear of God with God that allows a purifying in us from our ways, our, our agendas, our crooked ways. It brings us into a purity of spirit in worship where we're not trying to hype things up individually or corporately as a body of believers. The Word of God warns against those that claim to be spiritual, that claim to have revival, and yet misrepresent his glory. This is very clearly seen in passages of Scripture, such as in the book of Revelations. I believe it's Revelation 16 where the Lord warns, as he's describing his soon return of the battle of Armageddon, and he says, Behold, I come as a thief. Blessed is he that watcheth and keepeth his garment, lest he walk naked, and they see his shame. And when the world sees the church acting weird and strange and manifesting their own self-gratifications of experience over humility and integrity, that also brings one into genuine experience that bears fruit, it turns them away from Christ. May we be those that live in such a way that we manifest great joy and great liberty and great enjoyment of God, but out of a purity that is birthed in the genuine fear of God, which births humility and honesty. So that we do not find ourselves being motivated towards experience over truth that brings the deception. 
And this tendency of experience over truth is manifested in two ways. In this day and age in the modern world mostly, such as in the West here, it is more towards a counterfeit gospel that preaches a grace without truth, that ignores the holiness of God and the judgment of God. That is the integrity of God's love. It denies that aspect of his nature and only emphasizes the grace of God. This is similar to the false doctrine that was in the very beginning of the early church and that actually existed from the time of Cain, soon after the time of Cain. I can't get into that at this moment. And that is, and I think I got his name pronounced more or less right, Marcin, and there was what's called Marcinism. He believed that the God in the Old Testament was a different God than the God in the New Testament. And he emphasized that this God of the New Testament was filled with grace and he ignored the holiness and the judgment of God. And that is happening today. And God is calling his people to turn and to repent from this deception. It leads into a false and a counterfeit unity with other religions. It leads into the false teaching of universalism, which is the teaching that everyone will be saved, including the devil himself eventually, through God's dealings. The problem with that is that it violates the integrity of God's being of love and brings conformity and condoning to that which is destructive, which would imply that God would therefore be corrupt and could not contain unlimited power and life without corruption. God is calling us as his people to come back to our first love and to break the alabaster box at his feet like the woman broke it at Christ's feet. He's calling us to be like the woman that wept at Jesus' feet with, and wiped his feet with the tears of her hair because she was so filled with thankfulness that she was forgiven and was so touched by the love of God. He's calling us to be like the publican that beat his breast and said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner, instead of like the Pharisee that gloried in all the wonderful works that he did that were merely religious activities that had nothing to do with a genuine relationship of reciprocation out of the fear of God with God. Integrity in relationship with God above identity with one another breaks counterfeit identity in one another and brings forth God's purpose in a genuine unity in the corporate bride. I have even heard people get up, sometimes in meetings, and share things that seem to be totally right doctrinally. And they're sharing it like they got a hot, something. I don't sense the Spirit bearing witness with what they're saying. There's something wrong. Everything they're saying outwardly sounds right, but I do not sense it's being said out of the Spirit of God. And I can sense the effect is to bring division. This happens once in a while. It doesn't happen often where I attend. And all I can do is pray and be quiet and still love. Because the last thing I would want to do is make an issue unless the Spirit told me to. God will take care of people that don't move in the spirit and get in his way. 
oh, they can get up and make themselves sound like they're the one that is on the, that knows, that has all the truth. And they're there to warn everyone of all the dangerous things and dangerous people that might creep into their midst and deceive them. Oh, it's not wrong to warn against those things if you do it out of the Spirit. But God is wanting us as his people to seek, to, to share out of the Spirit of God, out of love, out of humility, to have such a love for one another that as it were, we wash one another's feet with the Word of God out of great humility where we're esteeming one another better than ourselves instead of trying to figure out who is the tares and who is the wheat. God told us not to do that. That he would separate the wheat and the tares. He calls us to be like John in this passage. Here's the thing about John the Baptist. And I mentioned this in the other message, which is probably quite different than this one, the one I did on July the 28th on the same chapter. John the Baptist, Christ said, was the greatest among men. And yet when you look at his life, contrast John the Baptist with Elijah. One would in the natural want to conclude that Elijah was the greatest man. Why? He walked so close with God that he was translated. He did tremendous miracles. John didn't do any great miracles. But John the Baptist was so conformed to the being of God in his love for truth. You know that verse that says, Thou hast hated unrighteous, thou hast hated iniquity and love righteousness, therefore God, even thy God, has anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows, speaking of the Messiah in Hebrews. What is, what is that saying? That is speaking of godliness. That is speaking, what is godliness? It is conformity to the being of God. God's being has such integrity of love that it is a consuming fire of judgment against what is contrary to his love. And so John the Baptist had a tremendous hate in conformity to God's hate for what was contrary to the love of God. John the Baptist had a tremendous conformity of love for righteousness. And because of that, there was a powerful anointing on him so that when he preached, it had a tremendous impact upon people. So that they said in this passage, what shall we do? God perceived John as the greatest because of this conformity, not because of the miracles. Not because of all of these other things. And God is calling us as his people to quit putting our identity in outward signs and wonders and on looking up to people that seem to have powerful gifts rather than looking up onto Christ. That doesn't mean that we don't look up to these people. There are many that have powerful gifts and that walk very close to God. But there are too many that put them on a pedestal. And there is great men of God in even recent church history where denominations have formed around them. 
and they would turn in their graves if they knew that they were so put on a pedestal and enshrined to even believe this one man is Elijah that came. I won't go into telling you much about that on this, but there are people like that and movements like that today. Start to believe false things about others like they're the Elijah the prophet and so on. How dare you? How dare you put your identity in people and look up to people? You need to repent as a denomination. And you know which denomination I'm talking about. People as a whole need to repent of becoming denominational and forming hierarchies that have limited God. I believe God will cause even movements, whole denominational movements to repent of their denominationalism and come to be open to the full counsel of God that is described in this passage here in John about every mountain being brought down and the valleys being raised up and the crooked places being made sweet, straight and so on. Putting aside our own organizational agendas that form a shell of comfort that limits what God can do in our midst. Beginning to love and receive other brothers and sisters that view things different than us, but have the essentials right. We're to receive one another as Christ received us, not to receive one less than another because they don't see eye to eye. God will bring us in to a place of genuine unity. If we seek him in these last days, his presence will come down because we will be brought together as living stones that will form a habitation of God by his spirit that will release his authority and power to conquer our community because his presence will be a beachhead that will spread out in the community in the city to conquer the powers of darkness. And as we go forth, we will go forth as an army to claim our nation back for God, to claim our city back for God and our community. Oh, there's so much more. I didn't get through half of the notes that I will have on this, on my website. The only thing I can say in closing is I'm already over an hour preaching. But in verses 11 to 14, it talks about the breaking of covetousness in material possessions because of genuine repentance. There's so much more to preach on. Maybe I should preach the next half, the next day, I don't know. We'll see what God wants. In verses 15 to 18, hunger that feeds overcoming self-seeking and self-glory that only seeks identity in God and the glory of God that can stand in the time of judgment. It describes the chaff and the wheat. Are we being conformed to become wheat that cannot be blown away by the winds of this world? Because we've got to the place where all of that grasping for the things of self-glory and of this world have died through learning to wait on God through prayer and come into identity with God that way so that our identity is not in the things that are temporal so that when they crumble, we crumble with it. But our identity is in genuine relationship and fellowship with God And what is the secret in that? It is having a thirst for that relationship with God. It is only reality that can satisfy the inner core of one's being, and that reality, of course, is God. He is the very source of reality. 
and only he can satisfy the inner core of one's being because he has his presence to give to us and allow to indwell in us in communion. Will we feed that? Or will we allow the temporal amusements and pleasures of this life to quench that thirst? It is very clear that the secret to overcoming is having a thirst for relationship with God because it says in Revelations 21, says, He that overcometh shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. And the verse before it says, I will give unto him that is a thirst freely of the water of life. If we are a thirst, God will give to us freely that which satisfies, which is the water of life. And that is the secret to overcoming all things, not putting our identity in the world. I cannot continue to preach for time. I'll just mention the brief things I put in here. Paying the price for godliness that seeks God's glory above self-interest is in verse 18 to 20. And that's what John the Baptist paid. He was beheaded. He didn't have a long life. And yet God saw him as greater than any other man of God, as Christ described. Because he had such a love for God that he would reprove unrighteousness, such a hate for sin, such a conformity to God, such a godliness. And didn't want any glory for himself at all, only had the desire to see God's glory come down and break and, and invade the darkness to the point that he was beheaded. Verses 21 to 22, we see the confirming of God's authority on the Messiah. And I cannot go into that. But I've talked about the triunity of God. And in this last little bit, you do see the triunity of God that I earlier talked about. And that is the relationship that God wants us first to have in him, out of the fear of God, and then in one another, where there is truth and love that prevails and not a counterfeit. God bless you for listening to this message, and I look forward to serving you again. Thank you.